Hello and welcome back to another special edition of the Two Black Too Nerdy podcast. I am your host, Chris, and this is part three of three of the Black Vote podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to our guest panelists, as well as my co-host, Chris, and a special thank you to you, the listener. I hope you enjoy. I see that now I am muted. I unmuted myself. All right. So I want to move on to something else that was talked about in, in the debate that has been prob that's already been mentioned a couple of times, but that has been uh, probably the biggest thing to come out of the debate besides that it was a uh, total fuster cluck. Um, so we have, uh, uh, I, I have the transcript. I am going to read it. Bear with me because I'm going to be three people. Um, and we're going to go for this. All right. So moderator Chris Wallace says, okay, you have repeatedly criticized the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left-wing groups, but are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha, as we've seen in Portland, are you, are you prepared specifically to do that? President Trump? Sure. I'm prepared to do it. I would say. I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, left wing, not from the right wing. Chris Wallace. So what do you what do you say? Trump, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Wallace, then do it, sir. Biden, say it, do it, say it. Trump, you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me Chris Wallace, white supremacist and white supremacist and right wing Biden, the Proud Boys. Trump. Proud boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem. This is a left-wing problem. Take it away. All right. It took him two days. Oh, Toro, you want to go? Okay. Yeah, so I thought the, I mean, this exchange was not surprising to me considering like Charlottesville happened. Um, and you know, the, the thing, the issue that Trump has himself in is that some of his supporters, okay, I'm not going to say all, I'm not going to say, I won't even say most just to be kind, but there are people who are racist, white supremacists who support him and he does not want to talk down to them. Or condemn them because he wants them to vote for him. So he always likes to deflect to Antifa, which Antifa isn't even an organization. It might be, you might consider it a movement, maybe, but Antifa is not an organization. And his whole strategy is always to deny, deflect, because your average, you know, American Washington TV might not, you know, might not know, they might not know the, they might not know what the Proud Boys actually are. They're pretty much like a new age, post-2016 white supremacist group. They don't know what Antifa's doing. They have no idea. So this is just a thing he does. He defends them because they're some part, you can argue how big of a part, but some part of his coalition. So I wasn't shocked that he did this. And yeah, I mean, it's been four years, right? Or at least a little over three, I guess. I'll just say extremely disappointing comments. Uh, I don't think that we give the power of rhetoric the credit that it's due, especially in 2020, where everyone has a microphone through their telephone. 
This literally is controlling the narrative. And when you have a president that will not condemn these things perpetually, we could look at tons of examples of this over the last three years where it's not what he did say. Sometimes it is what he did say, but more than not, it's what he doesn't say. And we're, we're making steps backwards as though, I mean, I don't even know what kind of dancing this is, like these kinds of steps backwards. I mean, you have to be winning some type of um, soul train award. Like it's out of control. And I think that the, what Terrell mentioned, you know, taking two days to qualify it and all of that, you know, today you will lose funding, you will lose standing if you come out and say you're racist. So nobody's saying that, but I will never forget when they asked President Trump, are you racist? And he said, I am the least racist. So he is telling you he is racist. He is verbally telling you, and it is dog whistling and it is cold language and it is speaking to, uh, you know, all of the supremacy groups that are out there and other hate groups that are out there that they have free season to continue to fuel hate and do crazy things. And when you have a white woman dying at the hands of white supremacists in a Southern state who is standing with uh, Black Lives Matter, African-Americans, you know, that is just a detestable thing. And I think that we really, if we do not wake up, you know, we could find ourselves in a really, really bad place. Um, You know, race wars are possible in 2020. Um, I just want to say this about the comments. No one should be surprised by this. Uh, When someone tells you who they are, believe them. He's been racist since the beginning. He's been racist since Central Park 5. He's been racist before that. He's been racist to all types of racist groups. And you look at this man with the support of David Duke. Every uh, white supremacist group that exists supports this man. How can you think anything else? Just plain and simple. Period. Christina, go ahead. Well, I will be the only one to give an opposite opinion. But um, just like I said about Biden, when, and I know I'm not saying that those statements were the same, I'm not making them equal. But just like I said about Biden, when I wasn't offended, I sincerely wasn't offended when President Trump said that. Now, why? Um, First, because I have been to the White House, and that doesn't excuse anything, but I, I I, have seen him interact with people that are very dear to me, like Alveda King, and I've seen the friendship that he has with her. I've seen the way that he interacts with Angela. I've seen the loyalty that he shows her, and so it does color the way that I see him. And also, just like with Biden, when Biden said that, I automatically felt like he didn't say what he was trying to say. And I felt the same way towards the president. When Wallace said, would you ask them to stand down? The first thing he said was, sure. And then he said, you know, pretty much I'll do anything. I want peace. And then he asked the question, what group? And then Biden said, the pride, the proud boys. And he said, stand back and stand by. 
And so automatically everyone assumed that stand by meant like stand back and stand by and get ready to go to war. And so I have um, a group of black girlfriends. There's like eight of us and we're totally different with our politics. And we are on this ongoing text message group chat like for probably six years. And every every day we're just chatting. And so I, I first asked them, how did you take that? What did you think? And a lot of them felt like, He's trying to start a race war, but I asked them, well, who do you think he's telling them to fight? Because Antifa was brought into the conversation. So if he was, now I didn't think that he was telling the Proud Boys to go fight someone, but if he was telling them to go fight someone, wouldn't it be Antifa and not the black community? And Antifa is white. So wouldn't it be white people fighting white people? Now, that, that was just honestly where my mindset was because I am in Connecticut and I've been in the conservative circles, so I am familiar with Antifa. And one of the things that I noticed is that when you saw some of the rioting after George Floyd, you know, obviously black people, like we feel, well, I know, I'll speak for myself. I feel uncomfortable when it looks like, when people, when people in the conservative movement say things like, why are they burning down their own buildings in their community? They, you know, why are they destroying their own property? You know, as a black person, I like to say it's not, you know, it doesn't, it's not what it looks like. I mean, obviously the riot is the language of the unheard. So we had that whole angle, but then the, the, the other reality is that it's not just black people burning stuff down. Like there are white people coming in and burning stuff down and then black people are getting blamed for it. And so those white people are Antifa. And I saw black people who are not conservatives, who are liberals, when an article would come out and it would say, you know, this place was burned down and the camera footage shows that it was a white person. They would be the first person to put that article up and be like, look, look, it wasn't a black person who burned this building down. It wasn't a black person who started this fight. It was a white person. Look, it's white people fighting white people. And that's kind of what I felt like he was, you know, the Proud Boys versus Antifa is like white people fighting white people. So but we as black people are like, oh, we got to go get guns. It's a race war against us. Well, I mean, if people want to go get guns, go for it, because I think that's a good thing anyway. But I don't necessarily feel like I need to fear the, the Proud Boys. Like, I didn't even know who they were. And I don't, I can't take that as a legitimate concern. So I really felt like he misspoke that he was trying to say stand down but in the heat of the moment he said stand back and stand by but again that's how i interpreted it and then i knew there was going to be some kind of a clarification and so you know i waited a couple of days and there was that clarification now all of that being said i 100 percent completely understand that perception is reality so with communication, it's irreversible. Once you put something out, you can't take it back. And it doesn't really matter what you said as much as it matters what people think that you meant. So even with my husband the other day, we got in, in a disagreement and he was like, why don't you just say this? And I said, because it doesn't really matter. Even if I just said it, you're still gonna think what you're gonna think. So even if I was very clearly like, no, that wasn't what I was trying to do. You're gonna think what you're gonna think regardless. And I can't convince you of that. So I don't have any like uh, need to try to convince people like this is what really happened. I'm just wanting to give the like the honest opinion of what I thought. And I see a different side of the president 
I saw it when I was in the White House. I saw it when I met him. Um, I think that there is a sincerity in his heart to want to do good by people of color. And I can, I know how crazy that sounds, but I think there is a part of him that wants to work with any black people that will work with him. And sometimes it's like people like Diamond and Silk and, you know, Alveda and different ones, you know, we all get made fun of or mocked in different ways because we're the ones that are willing to do that. But I can tell you this, and I know this, no one can change or take away the reality of what I know. I live in Connecticut. I've gone to the Capitol here. I've testified to a different bill. I've been treated like garbage by liberal and progressive senators and legislators. They've mocked me. They've made fun of me. They've lied straight to my face. They've talked about me in, behind my back. They talked about me in front of my face. I mean, when I go into that Capitol building, I am meant... I've ma I'm made to feel like less than because I'm a conservative, because I'm a Republican. When I went to the White House, when I got invited to go to the inauguration, every time I've had interaction with the White House staffer, you know, I'm treated with respect and I'm treated with dignity. And of course, I know people would say, oh, that's just because they want to use you or they're just using you as a token. But say what Dexter says, it is what it is, can apply in different ways. And so for me, I know the reality of how I'm treated here in Connecticut as a conservative Republican and being really mocked and how I've been treated by the Trump administration, by Trump himself, by everyone who works with him. And it's in a way that is really honoring. And so therefore, that is why when something like that is said, I step back and I, I try to give the benefit of the doubt. But I don't just do that with President Trump. I do that with people in general. I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. So I just want to throw that out there because I know I'm the only one who thinks like that. And I, but there are millions of other people that think that way that are not on this panel. So I kind of wanted to just express, you know, how they feel. And I'll say this last thing too. I know we've been talking a lot, but so in general, a lot of the, the conservatives, black conservatives and white conservatives, what they think is um, how many times does he have to say it? He said it before. How many times does he have to say it? And Obviously, um, there's nothing wrong with saying something again and again, but that is kind of the, the mindset. So even when I was on social media for my liberal progressive friends, they were like, uh, Trump did not suprem uh, Trump did not condemn white supremacy and they're writing it over and over and over again. And then on my conservative side, I see the conservatives you know showing videos where he's had in the past and saying how many times does he have to do it? And so that's just the other. The other side. I want to save some space for wait, wait, Sarah. Hold on, Terrell. Hold on, Terrell. Um, because I know uh, Brittany had a question. Sarah Sarah's had something trying to talk. Yeah, Sarah uh, wanted to say something, and then Brianna wanted to say something. Um, before I say that, for the context of stand back and stand by. So, in the context of that sentence, stand by as a verb. Stand by as a verb, according to Merriam Webster dictionary, has two definitions to be present or to remain apart or aloof. And the second definition, to be or to get ready to act. So Brittany, you had a question. You're muted. Dang it. Uh, my question is, 
I don't really remember what it was. It's not really important right now. I think uh, Sarah has something to say. Okay. I need a minute to collect my thoughts. I have a lot of feelings right now. Um, I was just going to say, back to the, I think the original question was about all the comments made at the debate and everything. And for me, it feels way more pressing about whether or not Donald Trump is racist when we talk about like what him in office and what he says and does in office has incited in white America. I feel um, since he's been in office, especially, I mean, with Obama too, but since he's been in office, especially, we have white folks way more vocal um, to be anti-black, way more vocal to be, say, like the N-word and um, aggress black folks openly. Um, we have way more white folks walking around with their guns. And um, like we talked about earlier, calling the police on black folks, right? We have we have way more white folks who are more incensed to be um, violent and aggressive on social media and in person. Um, we, I don't know how much we've talked about in this podcast, but I was in Idaho the last year and a half. And like being black in Idaho is terrifying. I mean, being black anywhere is terrifying, but like white folks will just come up and yell at you and, and um, follow you in your car and they, they're acting wild. So um I think it's important to name how like mediocre white folks have like taken what Donald Trump said and used it to incite more violence um, against black and brown. Okay, we're gonna go Bree, then Terrell, then Dexter. Um, yes to everything that Sarah said. Also, um, I kind of want to respond to the point about how Trump treats people um, in the White House. Um, I mean, to Christina, to your point about feeling made to being made to feel less than human by um, progressives in like in the state capital, like that's terrible. And I'm sorry that that's been your experience. But to the point about, you know, Trump being like how we see how we see Trump um, being influenced by how we see him treating. I don't know, maybe women of color. I don't know exactly who you were naming, but in the White House, like the, the analogy that I think about is. Do you judge a slave master by the way he treats the house Negroes or the field Negroes? Um, because, I mean, he's responsible for both, you know, and like he might be a step removed from the field Negroes. He might have an overseer out doing his dirty work of beating them and driving them in the fields, but he's responsible for both. And and I would argue that the way he's having the field Negroes treated is more indicative of his character than how he treats the house Negroes that he's more comfortable with and feels um, are more like him or are more suitable to what he's trying to do. Why I think that's analogous to Trump in the White House, the way that he treats you know, women of color or whoever that he's trying to work with, um, that's fine. Um, but if he, if he perceives someone to be on his side or pushing the agenda that he wants to push, I think he's obviously going to treat them differently, whether they're black or white. Um, but I'm looking at how he's treating protesters who are who are exercising their First Amendment rights. And he's talking about sending the feds on peaceful protesters. The type, the level of violence that we've seen from police in, in this last wave of protest is unconscionable. And the president has done nothing but empower them and marshal them to suppress, violently suppress things that we have a right to do. Um, I'm not going to act like all protests have been peaceful, but I will say that peaceful protests have been violently suppressed again and again under the leadership of Trump. Um, and, to, and to 
Also breaking down his comments, like the level of detail of breaking down his comments this time, I didn't apply that level of detail because this is not the first time he's had an opportunity to condemn white supremacy. It happened in Charlottesville when there were protests and there were counter protests and people literally drove a, drove a car into a crowd and killed someone. And he still stood there and said, I'm sure that some of those white people, it was the white supremacist counter protesters that were being referred to. And he said, I'm, I'm sure some of them are fine people. He has shown himself again and again to be a white supremacist sympathizer and, and a white supremacist himself um, closeted. Um, and it's clear in how he treats people. Not, and it's not just about how he treats people in the white house. And it's great that you feel safe with him, but people, me and my friends who want to go and protest and stand for black lives have to worry about whether we're going to get tear gassed and killed. So we're not all safe and none of us is safe unless all of us is safe. Uh, I do want to say- uh, Can I say something real quick? Cause I just yeah. have to go, I'm so sorry. Thank you for saying that Brianna. And it's like Martin Luther King said, you know, and if you don't get justice everywhere, then justice in certain areas, you know, doesn't matter as much. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, and I, you know, I kind of always thought of myself as someone in the field in the sense that I don't have any power or I don't have any influence. I just feel like an, you know, a regular person who, um, by the grace of God was just invited into different places, but I, I get where you're coming from. I, I really want to apologize. I'm so sorry. I, my husband, you might see him in the back. Um, he's been texting me for an hour because, um, he's got the baby and, and so I have to run. I've been kind of ignoring his text because I know that I, you know, I'm giving a unique perspective here. And so I didn't want to get off. And I also didn't want you guys to think I was intimidated by anything I have to say. <laughs> to be honest, I was like, if I get off right now, they're going to think that I'm afraid of answering these questions. I'm not afraid. Um, but really, my husband is like, you've got to go right now. So, um, and I didn't know in the beginning when Kenneth, Kenneth invited me to come on and I didn't know who was going to be on or how long it was going to be. I literally just said yes. And I didn't have any information and then he wasn't able to make it. So I was like, okay. Um, but thank you guys. I'm sorry that I have to run, but, um, if anyone wants to talk with me, Later, you might never want to hear from me again, but if you did want to talk with me later, I'm on social media and um, I got to go feed the baby, but God bless you guys and, and thank you. And um, I just sincerely want to say everything that you said will make me a better person because as I listen to it and um, think about it and digest it, um, it'll make me a, a better person. So I appreciate all of your honest feedback. Okay, thank you Thank guys. you for coming on, Christina. Welcome, bye. Can I call the slide in real quick, Chris? Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, well, now that, anyway, one thing I want to say, um, Chris read the transcript. He wasn't asked to tell them to stand down. He made the conscious decision to say, stand back and stand by. I'm frustrated, annoyed, angry, terrified that there's trying to be a spin of, well, stand by. That was his attempt to tell them not to do anything. That was not the point. The point and the question was clear. The president of the United States on the debate stage made a conscious decision to say exactly what he said and then took two days to come out 
and say otherwise and didn't even do it in a public space. He did it on a Fox News station to his base to make it seem as if he was condemning racism. The only reason more people know that that even happened is because that soundbite got picked up by other news outlets and got broadly dispersed. There are good people on both sides. There's my black man or black person. I forget which term he used in that situation. That's my African-American. That's my African-American. Thank you, Chris. Get them the F out of here. You know, back in my day, we used to rough them up. This is not okay. This is not something that we can spin. And this is not a conversation that we should even have to entertain. But unfortunately, he's still going to probably get 200 plus electoral votes. As an African-American male in Idaho, I see the people that he's speaking to. And I'm not saying that all of them have dark motives or are trying to cause harm. But when I go to my place of employment and I have to look at a pickup truck with three Trump flags flying back like it's some proud stamp, like they're doing something courageous, while I'm a black man in Idaho doing something courageous, that is an issue. And that is a problem. And that is a sign of intimidation. One last point, because I know I'm talking a little bit over. Um, Let's go back before that comment, too, because I I think there's a bigger context that is being missed out here. Maybe two questions before the stand back and stand by comment. Chris Wallace asked him about election security, and he went on a elongated rant telling his supporters to go to polling stations and watch out because there were going to be devious motives happening this election and it would never be uh, legitimate. That is voter intimidation in its purest form. The Voting Rights Act got stripped by the Supreme Court and these types of actions can happen without the same type of teeth and mechanism we used to have to stop them. This is a pattern of behavior, not a one standalone incident, not one moment where we need to say, oh, well, maybe he meant something else. We can bring up quotes and things from all four years he's been uh, been a president and before. But what is more concerning is the fact that, and I'm thankful I was able to vote by mail, but if I was a black person in Idaho who had to go to a voting station on November 3rd after hearing stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys after hearing, be on the lookout at polling stations because there are going to be devious places. How are you supposed to know that I I can't vote? Were you following me from multiple polling stations even though I only went to one? No. You saw the color of my skin. You saw something about me and you decided that I was someone that shouldn't be allowed or my vote shouldn't matter. And that is the problem and the concern. So just... I know she's not here and I wish she was to hear this part, but to Christina's point, we need to stop the spin of what he's saying and just call it what it is. She can listen to uh, to it after. Yeah. I do want to say, um, I, I have, I have the transcript. Um, so this was, uh, about 25 minutes after the stand back and stand by, he said, someone's calling me. Uh, (laughs) Um, said, I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I'm urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem in Philadelphia. They went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. And I am urging, I am urging my people 
I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And uh, Chris Wallace asks, does that mean you're going to tell your people to take to the streets? Trump says, I'll tell you what it means. It means you have a fraudulent election. You're not equipped to, these people aren't equipped to handle it, number one. Number two, they cheat. They cheat. Hey, they found balance in a waste paper. Uh, I'm assuming this means ballots. They found ballots in a waste paper basket days ago, and they had all the name military fellows. They were military. They all had the name Trump on them. You think that's good? But Chris, we're not even we you even we all even forgot about how his whole thing with Biden now was Biden's going to destroy the suburbs by adding a low low income housing, you know, in uh, the suburban neighborhoods. Like that's just straight. I mean, that's straight like old school racism. Like, oh, my gosh, there might be a lot of black and brown people in your neighborhood. So you got to watch out. So, I mean, this is. I mean, as you guys, as we've all been, as we've all been saying, this is repeated behavior from this president. In my opinion, yes, he is racist. And not only that, he does not want to lose those supporters in um, the upcoming election. And Chris, the fact that, oh, do I have permission? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Chris, the fact that you have to say my opinion in my opinion, is ludicrous. This is not a matter of questions. This is a matter of facts. The facts prove that Donald J. Trump is racist. The facts prove that. It is an insult to my intellect and the intellect of any human being that he even is president. Let's look at why he's president. The correspondence dinner where Obama seemingly insulted him is the reason that this man is president. Yep. He was pissed that a black man was president and had the balls to address his ignorance for questioning his citizenship. And so that became the impetus for which he ran for the United States presidency. And it is laughably uh, to now see that tyranny by means of anarchy is the way that he wants to rule is completely out of control. The fact that we're even having conversations legitimizing his presidency, it's ridiculous. We never should have allowed this to happen. And we are in a position where our democracy is more fragile than it has been in our lifetime and probably in the lifetime of our grandparents. Uh, We really, 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 uh, I think the more that we talk about Donald Trump, that's the thing that really annoys me about news media today. We blow him up to such a level by talking and retelling his story that it makes him the biggest in the country. We should be talking about him less and less and less and reducing him because he doesn't deserve the attention. He's flagrantly racist, he's flagrantly foul, and he's flagrantly against democracy and all that it stands for. Uh, I had I had so many more things to talk about regarding these these uh, candidates and I. I yeah, where I, I know we're uh, we're getting close to the three hour mark. Well, two and a, actually two and a half, but I know we've yeah, been in here for a while, so. Yeah, so I want to move off of this, but I I wanted to talk about so many things about the candidates like Biden and the 94 crime bill, Trump and his 1989 ad for the Central Park Five, uh, Biden and segregation in the 70s. It's hard with a panel of nine people. That's that's definitely part of it. So just a note, we do things like this again. Right. Um, Like I said, seven page document. Uh, So we're I want to move on to. talking about uh, 
some other issues, some that have been brought up, uh, but specifically to each person, um, what are, if you, if you can quantify it, the top two issues that are important to you as a black American? It's easy for me so I can go because it just, I don't know, it just came to me and maybe I'll feel differently later, but I would say economic justice and criminal justice are my main two um, because racial capitalism has put so many black people in the lowest income tiers. And I'm just like really passionate about the fact that a lot about us being able to eat, like, you know, so I feel like economic justice, I'm kind of cheating because it includes things like minimum wage and like welfare benefits and things of that nature, but just us having the basics that we need to uh, live. I just feel like that is too often neglected, you know, housing and things of that nature. And then just because it's my own issue area, um, like criminal justice and the way that like, and that includes issues of like policing and incarceration um, because it's killing us quickly and slowly. It's killing us in the streets at the hands of the police and it's throwing away so many of our lives behind bars in jails and prisons. Um, so yeah, those are the two that, that I look for the most. Um, I'm going to cheat as well by just saying quality of life and that encompasses um, our schooling, school funding, uh, police funding, uh, that includes healthcare, education system uh, on the collegiate level. Uh, so yeah, I can't, I don't think I can narrow it down to two, two most important topics. If blacks weren't being brutalized in America, and if we didn't have a individual as the president of the United States, I would say education and healthcare. I would say though that um, prison reform and social justice as it pertains to African-Americans kind of trump those, no pun intended, present. I think I will hop on and say um, criminal justice reform specifically um, around just undoing the 94 crime bill act but also caveating that with um, the legalization of marijuana and the overturning of some of those cases on top of that i would actually still say education purely because um, the way that the american economy has been built you are hindered by how much paper you're able to hang on the wall and if African-Americans are still held and limited in their ability to have access to education. I question if we will have the opportunity to have social economical justice, to have that great quality of life, or if it'll just continue to be a repeated cycle. I'd echo that. I think um, I would say just about the same thing. Uh, criminal justice reform is definitely number one thing for me. Um, it's something that I wanna see changed. Um, and I also just justice in general, um, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, I probably would have said it was education and foreign policy or the national debt. Um, and those are definitely, you know, some, some, some huge issues. 
Um, but I think, uh, unfortunately, we've got to stop black and brown people from dying, um, both from police officers and from unequal access or inadequate access to health care um, or clean drinking water um, or just the, the social uh, programs that uh, people of color in inner city neighborhoods especially need in order to survive, in order to take care of their families. So I think I'll go for that. Oh, uh, yeah, it's just kind of echoing everyone. I think if I had to pick one issue, it would be the school to prison pipeline. So just centering that on education, um, the policing of our black and brown um, bodies, girls and boys, um, specifically in our education system and how they're funneled into the prison system through our schools. Um, I agree with pretty much everything you guys have said. Um, I think I would probably for me go with economic justice as well. So, I mean, there are obvious things like the minimum wage. Um, I think that we need to strengthen things like unions in this country for sure that I think that would definitely benefit black people. Things like public transportation in certain cities. I mean, I think that economic justice is probably my number one. And then, um, you know what? Just just to say something a little different, I will say number two, maybe a foreign policy. I feel like the United States spends a lot of time, a lot of money fighting wars abroad for no reason when a lot of that money could be used here in the U.S. to help black Americans. So I'll actually put foreign policy as my second. Okay. Uh, I think this topic might be the last uh, substantial one, and then I'll get into some sort of like um, lightning round questions. Um, so this is a two-parter, go with the first part. Um, should Black Americans descended from enslaved Africans receive reparations? Chris, can you repeat that? You said, should African-Americans receive reparations? Yes, yeah, should Black Americans descended from enslaved Africans receive reparations? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's a very complex question, how, what, when, you know, but the why is clear. We were robbed, we were mutilized, mutilated, and, and destroyed. So I think absolutely. Uh, for people that think that that shouldn't happen, I would have to lay out a long discourse of why. If we didn't take it from Africa, if we just took it from what was taken from us here, absolutely. Every legal system that is just would say the same. You owe us. Wilmington, Tulsa, Paradise Valley, you owe us. Um, I would also say, I would also say yes. Um, you know, I think the interesting reparations conversation is like, you can get a lot of people to agree, like there should be something. I think the real question comes into like, what form does reparations come in? Are we talking like stimulus checks to black people? Are we talking something like some sort of basic income? Are we talking about investments in infrastructure, investments in schools? I mean, there's so many ways that things could be classified as reparations. So I think that's where you can have a really interesting uh, conversation. So so to that point, so there are a lot of uh, obviously critics of 
receiving reparations. Um, there are some uh, that say, well, slavery was too long ago or that cost is too high. So I, I ask if slavery, uh, if reparations from enslaved people are not feasible, should there be reparations for the descendants of black veterans that were unable to receive uh, the benefits from the 1950 GI Bill? Or is 1949 GI Bill, but that one. And for those that don't know, the GI Bill uh, was for veterans that fought in World War II, where it was uh, basically great loans for you to be able to go and get housing, which, especially during the 50s and 60s, housing was how you developed wealth in America, owning a house. I mean, it, it still is, but being able to own a house and so be able to put you know, get loans because you're in a good neighborhood. Um, so would you say if you, would you rather fight for that kind of reparation versus reparations from slavery? Reparations in general. Generational wealth was stolen from the African-American in America. Um, I was able to go to the March on Washington this year. A speaker gave a really impassionate comment that has stuck with me. Actually, I think it was Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton asked, why, why does this march always happen at the Lincoln uh, Memorial? And um, he went and talked to some people and what they came back with and what they heard from why Martin Luther King chose that specific spot is when African-Americans were emancipated and set free, if you will, Lincoln made a promise. He made a promise for a fair system. He made a promise that the African-American in America would be brought up and would not be oppressed or held enslaved any longer. That promise was never kept. The reason that march happens in front of his feet is because he promised as the president of the United States, as the leader of that free world at that time, that things were going to change and things never did. So whether it's the GI Bill, whether it's because they were, um, you can identify that you were enslaved or your ancestors were enslaved, whether you're just a black person in America and you can't even go back that far, you deserve reparations because this country has never kept that promise and has stolen the opportunity for you to have the great American dream of social mobility. Agreed. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be willing to trade out reparations for all of us for reparations for the GI bill. I mean, that would be a start, but like, like Terrell said, we all had wealth stolen from us and our ancestors. And I think it's important that you mentioned being descendants of slaves because I mean, this is, it's a whole different conversation, but I think sometimes people act like all black people have the same plight. Um, and I just feel like that's so far from the truth. And we erase so much when we don't pay special attention to the specific plight of black Americans who are descendants of slaves. I was watching All American last week and I just found out that the actor who plays him in, is British. And it just annoyed the mess out of me because I'm like, man, we can't even tell our own American, black American stories. First Harriet, now, now this, sorry, stuff is falling on my desk. Um, so I just appreciate you like making that specific like notation. Anybody else before we move into a lightning round? I just want to say uh, no shade to our uh, black British people, John Boyega's man of the culture. So 
I'll always uh always stand him a little bit. No shade, but I think that like stories that are specific to Black Americans should be able to be represented by Black Americans. And I think it's just another form of exclusion in the film industry that is also representative of our exclusion in other industries. And I think sometimes they like to just choose Black people from other places rather than actually give Black Americans who are descendants of slaves the opportunities that we deserve. Has anyone seen Watchmen with uh, Regina King? Yeah. I would be interested, you know, what are the what are the conversations that are happening around reparations? Because I do think that once it happens, and I believe it'll happen in our lifetime at some level, I just am an optimist, I believe it. But I do wonder what the fallout will be and will that increase racial tensions and how will we manage that? All right. So we're going to move into the lightning round. So this is going to touch on several different issues. Uh, but first, we are going to start on education. Um, one, uh, and I think I saw this in chat earlier, um, do you think the public school system in America has failed, specifically failed Black children? Yes. Without a doubt. Absolutely. All right. Do you believe that um, school vouchers, which are normally presented uh, from uh, the Republican Party, should be an option um, in to Black students, to students in general, but specifically Black students? Can you say that again? Do you believe that school vouchers should be an option? I'll change it. Do you believe school vouchers should be an option to uh, specifically to black children or to all children? I feel like if if one, if some of our kids are gonna get it, then all of our kids uh, need to have access to it. But I think the whole voucher program, we need to end that period. Because if if that school is not good for me to send my kids to, I don't want your kids going there either. So it's either we reform the whole uh, the whole system so that we, we just make it so that way any kid could go to any school and get the quality education that he or she deserves, um, or we don't. So the, the vouchers is, is basically saying, well, you ain't gotta go to that carpet school in your neighborhood, come to our neighborhood. Nah, I'm good, bro. If I can't send my kids there, if I'm not comfortable with my kids going there, I don't want yours there either. I echo Lawrence's point. Agreed. Yeah, I would just say one interesting thing about that is that I hate that like black people, we pretty much have to fight for scraps all the time. Cause I remember there was an issue where, so I went to school in Southfield was a Detroit suburb, Southfield public schools better in general than Detroit public schools. And we would actually have a lot of kids from Detroit who will go to our schools and use their parent, use like a relative's address. And like, sometimes they'll be found out and like kicked out and like that's that shouldn't be something that we should have to do. We should have good schools here, good schools there, and there shouldn't have to, you know, the fact that like people have to go and sneak around the system just to maybe go to a school that's slightly better, I think it's just ridiculous. And it's also criminalized. A black woman went to jail for got sentenced to like five years in jail mm -hmm. for trying to do that for her kid. Mm -hmm. 
I'll just I just want to just uh, speak up just very briefly um, and just say I am a proud graduate of Detroit Public Schools. I was there all my life, um, so I just had to put that up in there just in case there was some shade. <laughs> Where'd you graduate from, Lawrence? I went to Southwestern High School. Okay, I'm not mad at it. That's awesome. Where, where, where did you? I live in Joseph Campo and Jefferson, right across from King. Got it. Okay, got gotcha. I wanted to say absolutely the educational system has failed us. I've worked in public schools, primarily failing public schools in African-American communities over the last decade. And the problems are so nuanced and so layered and so deep that a lot of times the government's public and private sector investors, parent, teachers, everybody is freaked out. They don't know what to do and how to fix it. And a lot of it is based on your zip code, where you live is what you're gonna get. And I, re I remember just becoming very discouraged that we would go in and do after school programming, after school with African-American youth uh, males uh, between the ages of 12 and 20. And we would have amazing results where kids that were failing, weren't eligible to play, would get their grades up and you know it was great. But we were just making a drop in this huge ocean and you feel like, can this ever change? And I think that similar to, you know, defund the police, dismantle police, we really need a dismantleization of education as it is. And we need to build from the bottom because these kids are not getting what they need and their family structures don't support it. So if kids are in a situation, I literally would have kids whose parents are, are telling them, uh, you know, in their senior year, don't graduate because I want to still claim you on these taxes. You know, we need to have places where we can help these kids to pull them out of those toxic situations and put them in board school if they need um, and have different levels set up of support because it's not holistic enough and we're not going to get the change just by, you know, putting in some magnet schools or, you know, giving some new buildings and stuff. It's, it's going to be a long haul effort. All right. Next question. Um, do we need to see a uh, renaissance of um, HBCUs in, in, in this um, country? And what I mean by that is uh, more focused on uh, things like uh, top tier athletes going to HBCUs um, are, you know, you know, the smartest students going to HBCUs instead of you know, Ivy Leagues or like Michigan, which is the Ivy League of the Midwest or something like that. Uh, do we need to start focusing on um, having black students pipeline to HBCUs? Um, I'll, uh, I, I guess I, I think I'll take a stab at this. So uh, my sister goes to HBCU. Shout out to Howard. Uh, one thing I, so HBCUs absolutely should exist. They absolutely should get as much funding as they possibly can. They have an immense value in the country. That being said, every black kid every is not going to go to HBCU. So I think that when we look at the education system, I mean, higher education in general, I think needs to be overhauled for um, black students in general. So... While I don't mind, uh, I don't mind a focus on HBCUs necessarily. I definitely just, you know, for me, the reality, not everyone's going to go there. So it's not like we should put all our time and energy into, um, I don't know what the word is, but I don't, 
I think that we should focus on making higher education, you know, free, in my opinion, or at least more affordable. And students should feel safe and feel like they have a place no matter what school they go to, in my personal opinion. Also, let's not forget that we can help make these institutions competitive. I think one of the bigger issues here, especially with that question, is they're hamstrung by a lot of federal funding and regulation and things of that nature that make them seem, while how do I remember what I'm thinking? While it is an opportunity and an immense joy, I come from a family of a few HBCU grads there becomes this competition of like, oh, I got into the U of M, to the Harvards, to the all of these other institutions where I really challenge and think for that question, the renaissance needs to happen. But at the same time, we as a country need to be more specific and more focused on making them competitive with those institutions that we tend not prop up or highlight. Yeah, I think HBCU should definitely get more support um, because they offer opportunities sometimes to our students, our people, when other universities sometimes will not. Um, and they produce the highest number of, um, you know, just like, like, I know, like, I think Xavier produces the highest numbers of like black doctors or like, you know, like there's, they, they produce black professionals, um, at a higher rate, obviously, than these PWIs in their spaces that were built for us. And like, I went to Princeton and Princeton wasn't built for people, for our people. And like, we did what we could to make it better. And like, I'm glad that I went there, but like, I think that it's valuable to have schools that are built for us um, to build us up as black people and to send us out into the world to excel. Um, that being said, I went to Princeton because it was the best school with the best opportunities available to me. I mean, best is a loaded term. Maybe I'll say highest rank, most highly resourced. Um, and it opened a lot of doors for me. And so I think that black people, black, people, black kids should be able to go wherever they, they feel is going to be best for what, what they want out of their lives. And like, so I think that there shouldn't be like a dichotomy between the two. Not that your question posed that, but I've seen sometimes these conversations where it's like PWIs versus HBCUs. And I just feel like black, black students deserve the right to choose their own path. All right. Now we're going to switch over to healthcare. Um, healthcare, uh, as has been touched on before, um, black women have the highest uh, maternal um, pregnancy related deaths, I think is the term that the health system wants to use um, in this country by a wide margin. Um, how um, do you think there is inherent uh, racial systemic bias in the healthcare system in America? Um, Absolutely. Oh, Dex, you can go ahead. You can go ahead. Well, the stats prove it. I believe that generally population changes. Um, doctors are not as sensitive to African-American health needs, and there are literal differences. If you pull up your chart, uh, they actually measure African-American lipids different than they do white Americans and other uh, ethnic uh, races in the country. So I think that we have a huge need for sensitivity training and making sure that doctors, nurses, and all medical professionals, those that are running labs in the back, that they're receiving training to understand the African-American body um, and as well being sensitive to women in childbirth. That's a major, major concern. Those numbers should not be going up. 
in 2020. We have the science. We don't have the sensitivity. I think that um, black health is more complicated than just um, the stats. For example, why is asthma more common in the black community? It's because of environmental um, racism, really. Building factories nearby, poor neighborhoods, um, not caring about black lives. This is such a, every question in politics is loaded and complicated and there's no simple answer. Um, but um, I forgot the original question, but there definitely needs to be a change when it comes to black health and how we are treated in black healthcare, believing black people, um, even when it comes to scientific research, a lot of the studies and images shown to doctors and nurses are white. They don't know what some of these things look like on black skin. And that's a, another problem within itself, uh, going back to education, how the education system needs to be overhauled. And that includes higher uh, education, such as residencies, et cetera. All right, um, next, uh, including in healthcare, um, mental health. Is there a, I already know the answer to this is yes, but uh, is there a disconnect between, especially between generations, between uh, regarding black mental health? Um, 110%. Yeah, Lawrence, you wanna go? Okay, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. Um, there tends to be, there, there is a generational divide I feel like a lot of times with older black folks, I think that they kind of had a mentality of, hey, man, you got to power through X, Y, Z to succeed. And I don't know if and I'm, and this is just my personal opinion. And I don't know if culturally there was a, there was enough emphasis on mental health because we were just worried about so many other things. I think in the social media age, there's just a heightened awareness around mental health. There's a heightened awareness around things like suicide rates and stuff like that. So I feel like with, um, you know, sort of the, the millennial generation and down where we're getting to a, a bit of a better place of at least being able to talk about mental health issues openly compared to um, previous generations. Yeah, I think uh, uh, just to echo that, I definitely have to agree, to agree with that. Um, it could be uh, just culturally speaking. Um, where I'm from, when you start acting crazy, people just think you need a whooping, you know, not some some medication, you know. And and we tend to think it, it, it's historically speaking, though, um, just for what we've been through, just as a people. Right, the last thing that people wanted to admit is that you had a mental problem. And now our generation, especially, I can't tell you, well, I can't tell you, it was sometime in college. Um, so not that long ago that I actually started to believe and started to understand and see that depression is a real thing. And it's like, that's scary. How many years did I go by either dealing with depression myself or knowing someone who's dealing with depression and didn't know what I was looking at, didn't know that I, what I was dealing with uh, or anxiety? Um, th these are real like mental issues that, that people have. And we don't know how to have those conversations at the dinner table. Um, we don't know how to, to go out and seek that that the thing that we need um and in the black house don't say you got to go to therapy or don't say you got to go to counseling 
because then you're really in trouble. <laughs> um, I think our generation, we're becoming more understanding of that. We're seeing that it is real and that we should seek those things. It doesn't mean that you're going to hell um, for all my church people. It just means that you are so focused on your mental health that you that you uh, that you want to get better, that you understand that there may be an issue uh, and that you get better. Uh, if I could, I would just even if you think you don't have a mental health problem, but you know you want to talk to somebody, do it. I think people who don't see a counselor or see a therapist are the crazy ones. I tell you that right now. Um, I think they're really the crazy ones. I think it's important to to have some sort of talk to a mentor, connect with the mentor, talk about these kind of issues. Uh, us as black people, we deal with trauma every single day, right? We watch the news, another black person got killed. We, we got to deal with what we got to deal with in our neighborhoods. Um, you don't have to go through it alone. Talk to somebody, reach out to somebody, and just let them know how you feel. Can I add to that? I know we're lightning round, but I just think yeah, it's worth noting that I think that like this new revelation about um, mental health. I think that the, that it's, it's less, that it's not just generational. I think it's kind of class stratified as well. Like I feel like access to education and higher education, like you mentioned, Lauren's learning about this in college. I know started hearing a lot more about mental health advocacy in college. I think in some more privileged spaces where people have the ability and capacity to focus on their mental health because their basic needs are met and they're able to think about personal growth and development, that those conversations about mental health are being more prevalent. And I think that those of us that are in those spaces are taking those conversations into, you know, our communities. But I think that, yeah, I, I think that there might be a class element to who's having this mental health revelation. Like I know my, my younger brother who's younger than me still is like, I'm not going to therapy. I'm not crazy. You know what I mean? Like I'm not talking to nobody. And like, he hasn't had that opportunity to just go away from school and focus on that per goal. Um, what's not, he hasn't gone to school yet and like had that chance to focus on personal growth and emotional development and all those different things. And so I think that the way that mental health is, is talked about in more privileged spaces is very different than the way that it's talked about in more like spaces where survival is key. And I think that black people who are like more like low income or in more poor areas, like that they get with mental health is like institutionalization, criminalization, sedation, like things of that nature. So it's just not as much of a healthy like, I don't think that we get to see it on a healthy side as much. Um, and I don't know. I feel like it's more generational. But somebody feel free to push back against that because I'm not claiming to know, you know, all of I'll say something really quick about that, about not about your point. I think that's valid and true. Uh, just about Black people and mental health is studies have shown that uh, trauma is generational. Um, there have been studies showing that it's ingrained in DNA, the trauma, like uh, Jewish people, uh, from people who are suffering Holocaust in their DNA, people who are suffering, Black people that were suffering from slavery, it's in our DNA. Uh, and it, it really, these things affect us and it's important to take that seriously. All right. Um, two more questions. Last one, or uh, this one is uh, universal healthcare or Medicare for all? Say that again, Chris. Universal health care or Medicare for you're all. saying that they're you're saying they're the same thing, right? You're saying what's our opinion on? They're they can be distinct things because universal health care doesn't necessarily have mean to be it, Medicare for all. Okay. For all. I don't understand. Yeah. So what? I don't understand mm -hmm. the difference. 
Okay, so Medicare for all would be uh, on an even platform. Every uh, American has Medicare for all, Medicare as their um, their healthcare plan. Uh, universal healthcare would be for anyone that needs it, Medicare or Medicaid, that's your option, but you're still able to keep your uh, private health insurance. So you mean like, you're talking about Medicare for all versus like a public option but you still kind of have the private healthcare system we have now. Is that is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, actually, Kamala's plan versus Biden's plan, or not Biden, Bernie. Bernie, got it, got it. Someone can go before me. I have stuff to say. I'll wait. <laughs> now, nah, Chris, go for it. All right. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to try to keep this short. Um, the private health insurance system in America, I think, is super corrupt, super evil, because essentially private insurers are almost like a for-profit middleman that you're forced to go through before you're able to get the insurance that you need. So I am in favor of Medicare for All. I don't think you really need the private insurance companies as long, you know, the I think the biggest concern people have is that, well, if everyone's on a public system, won't it be bad? But the fact is, so many countries are able to have a healthcare system where they pay their taxes and then they get sick and they can go to the doctor. And I think that's what we need to have here. Because, I mean, right now in the United States, you know, I mean, Obamacare was through a private system and had a mandate, but Obamacare even in its heyday, was still too expensive for people. And it's been gutted so much, especially, you know, with, you know, with the Trump administration that a lot of people just can't afford it. And I don't think that how much money you have should dictate if you, what kind of medical care you get if you go to the doctor. So that's my, uh, my, my healthcare spiel. I think it's tough because I think that like the the it's it's not it's I think it's nice to feel like like make a system in place where you can buy quality health care on the off chance that this the public system is bad. <laughs> but I think that your point is well taken, Chris, that like there shouldn't be a bad public system in that we should it shouldn't be that if it's a public system it has to be bad. Um I think insurance is the biggest scam ever. Like they want you them ready but when you need money from them occasionally they want to pay the bare minimum it's just an entire scam and i don't see how an industry that's structured that way can actually function in people's best interest so i wouldn't actually be down i wouldn't be against abolishing the entire private insurance industry and just one thing i also wanted to add private health insurance is also tied to employment well we've seen with the whole you know COVID-19, how many people have lost their jobs? What happens if you lose your job and you're unemployed and then you catch COVID? What are you gonna do? So there's so many reasons why our current health healthcare system is terrible and why a public system, in my opinion, would alleviate at least some of these issues. Now, as black people, we still have issues where once you get to the doctor, is your doctor gonna be racist, et cetera, et cetera. But the health insurance issue is a huge problem and we're not anywhere close enough to solve it right now. Chris, uh, Chris and 
uh, if I could, I wanted to just make a mention about insurances. I agree that we really need to take more possession of our insurance. And I wanted to recommend a book. I'm currently reading uh, this biography on A.G. Gadsden, and it shares a little bit about the black business that he built in the South at the turn of the century. But an insurance company for blacks, so providing life insurance. He also had a funeral company where he buried black people. So he was making the money, using that money to bury the people. I mean, he was like brilliant. But I do think that uh, buying black is important. I always am frustrated when black when you tell that black and then the black people don't show up on time. It's like you're defeating this whole cause right now. But I think that we also should move into black ownership of our health insurance. And I know that that's kind of like a really lofty thought to even think about. Three but I think that as we are talking about this black narrative, are there ways that we can insure ourselves um, and put it into the Uh, well, I forgot my last question. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I gotta get on, my groceries, that, man. Unless, yeah, unless I, I end quickly. So, uh, I would like to thank everyone for coming on Dexter, Brittany, Lawrence, Terrell, Brianna, uh, Sarah, who had to step out early, and Christina, who had to step out early. Uh, thank you all for coming on, for joining Chris and I. Uh, for this Black Boat podcast. Obviously, th this has gone on for about three hours, and there's still so much more we could talk about. Um, but I would like to thank you all for coming on. Um, to our listeners, thank you for listening. To the people watching this, uh, thank you for watching. Um, if you have comments, questions, obviously you can uh, follow us on various social medias or respond to where uh, leave comments on wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and where, whether you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, uh, but as a closing thought, black people in America are not a monolith. We are a very diverse community with a very, uh, diverse belief systems, but America has not treated black people the way black people should be treated. America has not loved black people the way that black people have loved it. And so in an ideological standpoint that Black Americans need to uh, have the onus on us to tell white America or the other part of America what problems matter to Black people. We've been doing that for too long. It's on the other parts of America to read up and to listen and to step up to this fight against racism in America because you may be tired for a day. You may be tired for the week that you fighting we've been fighting our entire existence in this country yeah thank you again uh, all of our guests you guys are all awesome welcome back anytime i'm sure the way things are going that uh there'll be a litany of topics to discuss in the future by the way elections in a month make sure you vote i don't care if you vote by mail i don't care if you vote by per vote in person you can drop your ballot ballot in the, ballot in the ballot box at your clerk's office if you're nervous about mailing a ballot in. So please vote um, on election day. Yes, register to vote at IWillVote.com. Then go vote. Read up on people. Take the time. Read up on the candidates, not just the presidential election, but the Senate elections, your governor elections, your local um mayoral uh sheriff elections uh boards of schools every election matters the 
especially the smaller down you go, because that affects what you do place that you live more often than the president will. Amen. Yeah. Thank you all so much for having us. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm looking forward to connecting with the other panelists after this on social media. Same. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right, everybody have a good day. This is our season finale. Chris will probably be back when in November. Yeah, we'll see. We'll November, see. Uh, yeah. We'll see, what we'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Bye.